All right, welcome back to another episode of Royals Review Radio. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Jeremy Greco. Jeremy had a little power outage earlier. I'm assuming we're all good to go. That's what I'm, I'm still getting text messages from the power company telling me that it's going to be a couple hours before they fix my power. But assuming you can hear me and I'm not speaking to my imagination, I think we're okay. What a time to be alive that you can text with the power company. I mean, can you imagine trying to explain to Babe Ruth texting a power company? No. <laughs> <laughs> Joined tonight also by Max Reaper. Max, how are we doing? Good. Uh, I actually got a chance to the Royals in Chicago last weekend at uh, the the friendly confines of Chicago. And, uh, man, that is one bad Cubs team. But then the Royals made took full advantage of that and played really well. And uh, almost saw Chris Bubich throw a no-hitter, uh, at least get through six innings with a no-no until the, you know, the fakest rain delay I've ever seen in my life. Oh my but, uh, yeah, it was a good time. And, uh, and it was great to be at Wrigley. Back in 2015, my wife and I, um, we were dating at the time. I went to Wrigley for the first time, and the the only game that we were there for, it was Jake Arrieta bobblehead day. Jake Arrieta had just won this, or was winning the Cy Young that year. He so he ended up winning it in 2015. So it's Jake Arrieta bobblehead day. He's starting the game for the Cubs, and uh, Alcides Escobar hit the first pitch of the game over the fence for a home run. So that's the game I got to saw. The Royals ended up winning. It was a great game. I loved Wrigley. It's probably one of my favorite stadiums, maybe not favorite stadiums that I've been to because three seats down from us was one of the beams. Somebody had to sit behind at the game. <laughs> but the area around Wrigley, Wrigleyville, I mean, dude, I've never seen anything like that. I've never been to Fenway. Um, but just the area that surrounds Wrigley was so unique, so cool. So Hopefully the Royals will get to keep playing there a little more often and I'll get to make a few more trips that way. But my goodness, it's just a really, really cool area. Yeah. And we, I went in 2015 as well. And uh, man, it's changed a lot in just those six years, just like the development. I know the Ricketts are really investing a lot. I mean, that's kind of what, how they're kind of hoping to reap a lot of uh, revenues because um, they've renovated the stadium too. There's some uh, in like a pavilion now, and I guess they're adding a sports book, which would be uh, kind of interesting to see how that goes, that plays out. But yeah, it does look a lot different now. But they've kept a lot of the integrity of the stadium. It's still really a special place to go to. Is it is it Rex Hudler that always tells a story about trying to steal ivy from the stadium <laughs> wall? That would surprise me. It should be. Yeah, <laughs> that is. I think that's one of the like. That's like one of my favorite things about baseball in general is football. Every single football field is exactly the same. Every basketball court's the same. And in baseball, you can have a hill in center field. You can have a tree in the outfield, uh, living <laughs> living plants. Um, you, you can have Cracker Jack boxes. It's just an outstanding um, uniqueness of the game that just is one of the coolest parts of the history. So um, speaking of having a hill in center field, the Royals are just wrapped up their series in Houston this week. Um they won the season series against the Astros, and I can't remember who pointed it out. One of those just unique stats, like a like John Boy would say, stats that exist and do not matter. The Royals have a really good record against first place teams this year, and I don't think it matters too much. But it is interesting. It's good to seeing that. Good to see them competing with the best of the best. It's good to see them showing that maybe if you know things click right and they make a move here, make a move there, that. Next year, there is legitimately a chance that they could compete in some capacity, maybe not for a playoff spot, but at least be close to 500 and showing signs of making the playoffs in a year or two. 
Um, and, and I think if they were just beating up on the bad teams and getting walloped by good teams, maybe you could be less confident. Going above 500 against first-place teams does have some semblance of mattering. The starting pitching looked great against Houston in all seven games this season. Brady Singer the other day goes five innings, gives up one run. I want to start with Brady Singer tonight. Brady Singer has one of the biggest differences in ERA, in his ERA and in his FIP in all of Major League Baseball this season. And I'm actually going to look that up because I was sitting here getting ready to say how big his difference is. I just want to make sure I get um, like the context of that added in. So while I'm while I'm looking up this line, I want to know what you guys think about the development of his changeup. Because Max, I'll start with you. His changeup actually looked like it was making a difference in his start the other other night. It wasn't necessarily the pitch itself that was getting the job done every time, but you could tell like Jason Castro struck out on a fastball and he was way sped up on it. Like the changeup clearly affected his timing, even when Singer threw a changeup that was up and away. It affected Castro's timing on the fastball. So what did you think of Singer Singer the other night? And what did you think the way that he used his changeup and how his changeup looked overall? No, I think that's a really good point. I, you know, I was reading David Lesky's newsletter today, and he was a little more negative on the changeup just because he thought uh, Singer wasn't spotting it really well, which I think is a legitimate criticism. But to me, it's yeah, it's not so much that he needs to have like a plus changeup. It's that, yeah, it needs to be a usable pitch that keeps hitters honest. And, uh, and so they're not teeing off on the fastball. And so it doesn't need to be a great pitch. It just needs to be able to set up the other pitches. And I think you're right. It was doing that, at least in keeping those guys honest. And, you know, it's, I don't expect him to, to be able to throw, uh, you know, changeups right where he wants to, you know, uh, you know, first start, uh, or first couple starts back from the minor leagues where he was trying to work on it. And I'm encouraged that he actually is throwing it now. And I don't know why it took so long for him to kind of, you know, you know, it took him till August to uh, end of August, pretty much to get to the point where he's throwing changeups, you know, more than one or two changeups a game, but I am glad he's doing it. And, and I think that does signal some comfort with throwing the pitch and uh, you know, and going out there and, and, and working on some, working on it a little bit. So I was encouraged by what I saw. And even if it's the changeup baby isn't, isn't quite quite where we want it to be yet, but it's still a process. Yeah. Jeremy, any thoughts on his start the other night? Um. The big thing for me is, I guess I'm going to be the the naysayer here a little bit. Is well, first of all, he threw what eight changeups, I think. So he's he's thrown that many before, and then completely cut them out of his rep- repertoire. So uh, I don't want to race ahead and be like, yeah, he's throwing his changeup again, or, or finally it could it could stop very suddenly. Um, he had a couple that looked really good, but. In general, and I'm I'm actually planning to write about this more this weekend. Um, I just think his changeup is too close to his sinker to be an effective pitch. I don't know if he needs to change his grip or if he needs an entirely new pitch. But um, and that that's something I'm going to be investigating a little bit. Um, but I, I even with a couple of changeups that look pretty good, I don't have a lot of faith that um it, it's the changeup is going to really get him where he needs to go uh just based on the fact that it has very similar movement and very similar velocity to to his sinker i don't disagree with any of the points either of you made i do think it's it's a work in progress at best because he clearly has not shown the confidence or really any kind of extra special ability 
to throw good changeups. And so in terms of the development of the pitch itself, I'm not seeing anything that, that would suggest the changeup in itself is getting better. But I think what we did see on Tuesday night was that when he threw his changeup, it had a significant if, if impact on his other pitches, even while it was a bad pitch. So even when he wasn't executing the pitch properly or correctly, it was still having a positive impact on his fastball and on his slider. And I mentioned the Jason Castro at bat. That's all it has to be. All you have to do is show it one time out of strike zone. Hey, here it is over here. See if you can get somebody to chase it. See if you can get somebody to make a, excuse me, make a bad swing at a fastball. But if he's not willing to even try because he's worried about the direct result of the pitch, then you're right, Jeremy. We're not going to see him throw it more and more often because if Brady Singer's mentality is, oh man, I just threw a changeup out of the zone. If I would have thrown the fastball in the first place, I would have gotten Castro there. That's not a good mentality to have. That's not going to make progress. But if he can see the forest for the trees and see that, man, that swing that Jason Castro took at that fastball is because you were throwing your changeup, because he had to respect the idea that you were going to throw a third pitch, then we could see him throw that more and more. And I don't mean to – like I I hate doing the whole thing where I bring in – and, and I really have never done it before, but I hate the idea of bringing in my playing career. But there were times when I pitched that I would literally throw a pitch, the first pitch of an at-bat, knowing I was never going to throw that again, right? I knew I was going to start off 1-0. But it's okay because now you've just told the hitter, hey, look, I tried to get ahead of you with a pitch that I'm never going to throw again. But now the only thing he's thinking about is that first pitch I threw him. And now you can work with two other pitches, never come back to that third pitch. And it's been effective because the hitter is constantly thinking about the first thing you threw him. I think where maybe Brady Singer and the coaching staff are differing right now with this changeup is the coaching staff, in my opinion, is telling him, just throw it and it will help. And Brady Singer's like, but it's not a good pitch. And I think what the coaching staff needs to keep reiterating is it doesn't have to be a good pitch, dude. All you have to do is show it. Just let it show face 10% of the time, and that 10% will have a positive impact on the rest of your stuff. I got it pulled up over here. Brady Singer's ERA minus his fifth this year is the sixth highest mark in all of baseball. Uh, There are 132 pitchers with at least 80 innings pitched, and Brady Singer has the sixth highest ERA minus fifth, meaning his ERA, 5.07. His FIP is 3.73. That FIP overall among all 132 pitchers that have thrown at least 80 innings in the big leagues this year, his 3.37 FIP is actually in really good shape. Like if my computer would load, I would tell you, but I'm pretty sure that's in the top 50 in all of baseball. It's it's even better than that. His FIP is in the top 25 in all of baseball. So it's really not in terrible shape. His FIP itself is in a good spot, but he has got to be better at run prevention. And I know that the advanced analytics community would tell you that just having a good fit would suggest that we're going to see better ERA results moving forward. But I think there's something to the idea of eventually you just kind of have to um, perform. You just have to go out there and actually stop the other team from scoring and I said that wrong. His FIP's not 3.37. It's 3.73, which is 49th or 48th in Major League Baseball. That's still in the top half. Um, so I want to get your guys' take real quick. Jeremy, I'll start with you this time. 
do you believe that what we've seen from Singer and the, the, the shape that his FIP is in suggests that we are going to get natural regression to the mean? Or do you think that there are inevitable changes that Singer will have to make in order to meet that regression? I think he's better than a 5.07 ERA. I think I think that is true. I also think that he's even if he doesn't throw his changeup or doesn't pick up a different third pitch, he can improve as a pitcher. Like I, I've said before that even with his two pitches, if he's locating, he can be quite effective. His problem so often this year has been that he's not locating. Um, I don't know that I buy a 3.73 FIP. Uh, just looking at some of his other stats, he is giving up line drives almost a quarter of the time. Um, his BABIP is 368, which you would think would regress, but that's a really high line drive rate. Um, it, uh, though uh, in his favor is his left on base rate is is really kind of low, 65.7%. I would expect that to, to go up. I think the MLB average that almost everyone sits really close to is about 70%. Um, so I would think that would go way up and that would drop his runs down. So it's, it's really hard to, he's definitely better than 5.07 in my mind, but 3.73 without making some improvements, um, beyond what he's doing now does seem like a bit of a stretch. The one thing he does have going for him and that he's been a lead at throughout his entire two-year career here is he does not let the ball leave the yard. Even when he's getting hit really hard, he generally keeps the ball down enough that it doesn't leave the yard, which if, you're, if, if your argument is, okay, look, he's got a 368 BABIP against, which is actually really high. A 368 BABIP against is the worst in all of baseball. So, again, these 132 hitter or pitchers with 80 innings pitched, a 368 BABIP against is the highest among all of them. His home runs per nine – is the 10th best among all of them. I agree with you. I think there are things he's going to have to change inevitably to be better. But I also think there are like legitimate factors and legitimate um, signals that he's just been a little unlucky. And I hate, I hate, I hate using Babbitt to just dismiss everything as luck because the other night he was getting hit all over the place by Houston. Like when he wasn't striking guys out or walking them, Generally, the balls he was letting being allowed to put in play were getting smoked, even if they weren't at the right launch angle to get out of the yard. Uh, Max, I want to get your take on this. Do you think that the strikeouts combined with his ability to keep the ball in the yard suggests that Singer, with a touch better command, could just be a better pitcher in terms of run prevention? Or are you convinced that he's going to need a third pitch to stay in the rotation? Well, I think a little of both. I mean, I think um, he's been pretty good. Uh, I, you know, like I think he's been better than his, his run prevention numbers would suggest. And I think uh, I think you'd see it with the eye test. I mean, like there'll be innings where he absolutely mows guys down and cruises. And then he kind of has that one inning where he kind of hits hits a, it's a wall. Uh, it's reflected in his numbers like his his uh, second time through the lineup. He's one of the worst pitchers in the league. Interestingly, he's actually pretty good third time through the lineup. But I think part of that could be once guys get a look at him, uh, they know it's, it's going to be, you know, either the sinking fastball or the slider and they have a better idea what they're doing. And that's probably why he has such a high line drive rate the second time through the lineup. Uh, and so I do think he'll need that third pitch. Uh, I did want to ask you, Alex, since I think, you know, you're, you're, you're into coaching and I think you've got a little more experience pitching than I do. Um, you know, Lesky talked about uh, in his newsletter that, 
you know, it doesn't have to be a changeup. That's his third pitch. Uh, and I was just curious if you had any thoughts about like, if, okay, if it wasn't the changeup, which hasn't looked great yet. Um, is there a third pitch that, that would kind of like complement his other pitches? Well, I know some guys have taken up a cutter and knuckle curve has worked for some guys, uh, you know, but, but I think, you know, I think it was Jeremy that mentioned, you know, because he already has a sinking action of fastball, maybe a changeup doesn't have enough, you know, differential in terms of, 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 uh, you know, uh, vertical movement to kind of, uh, fool hitters. So, you know, is there another pitch that perhaps Singer would be maybe be better off taking up? I actually tweeted something about that the other day over at Royals Farm Report that, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be a changeup, that maybe it could be a curveball. Because right now, whether he throws his fastball or his slider, everything's coming in pretty hot. And when there's not a huge differential in speed, if the ball isn't moving two or at least, you know, sometimes better to have it moving three different directions with three different pitches – you can sit hard, meaning you can sit on a fastball. And if you're wrong, the slider's moving so fast that your bat can catch up to it easily enough as long as it's somewhere near the zone, right? So just having something that either A, is significantly slower than those two pitches, or B, it has to move down and away from a lefty to create the next plane, right? So right now he's a fastball that moves it's pretty, it it stays pretty vertical. Like he doesn't get a lot of depth to his fastball, but there's a lot of crazy run to the right. His slider gets a little bit of depth and moves to the left. So we're working with two, three different planes there. And what we're not getting is down or to the right. So the curveball then offers at least the drastic change in speed. And the one thing that I think is underrated about like the Royals emphasizing curveballs to their pitchers and not sliders when they're in the minors is a curveball fundamentally is like throwing. It's not like throwing a slider, but with singer slider grip, you can, you can grip a curveball, use the same arm speed as the rest of your pitches and let the grip do the work. Like there's less you have to actually do for a good curveball in terms of grip and finger pressure and really feeling the ball out front, the way Singer throws a slider, and I don't know nobody can see me, you guys can, but nobody else can see this, <laughs> but it's like out on his fingertips a little bit when you, when you throw the pitch and you're trying to command that pitch with your fingertips, really feel it out front and then snap it off at the end. With a curveball, same grip basically, you just choke it. So you shove it back into your palm a little bit, same arm speed, and you let the friction of your fingers slow the pitch down as you come out and you get a little bit of a vertical hump out of the hand because it, I mean, fundamentally it has to roll off your fingers a little bit. So you can see it a little bit earlier, but it is so much slower that if somebody is sitting on a fastball, they can't physically keep their weight back long enough to wait for the curveball. So it doesn't have to be a changeup, Max. It can be, it could be a curveball. I really do think that it just doesn't seem like Singer is interested at all in finding that. And that kind of, you know, segues into what I wanted to talk about next with Cal Eldred. Brady Singer has plenty of options left. At some point as a pitching coach, I don't care if it's not your fault that he won't do it. You have to either make him or tell him that you can't pitch for this team until you do what we're asking of you. You know, I was, I was at his start against Baltimore Singer start against Baltimore when he blew up a few weeks ago. Um, it was July 17th, so that was over a month ago now. Two innings, seven runs, one strikeout. I mean, he looked awful. He was getting knocked all over the place 
by the Baltimore Orioles, who are about to lose their 20th game in a row. And after the game, he says, you know what? It doesn't matter if I have a changeup. If I can't control my first two pitches, nothing else matters. And I and somebody tweeted that at me the other day, and I kind of snapped back and said something like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's like saying, well, I don't need jumper cables if my, batter- my car battery is charged. That's like saying, I don't need a fire extinguisher if I just don't ever light anything on fire. It's like sometimes shit happens, man. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes you screw up. Sometimes you don't have the ability to be perfect. And having those backup plans, having jumper cables in your car, having a fire extinguisher, it's there for a rainy day. You're right. You don't have to use it all the time. But if you can go get it when things hit the fan, then you have the ability to put the fire out before it burns your whole house down. And against that start, against Baltimore, that start in July, he burnt the house down. He decided he wasn't going to own a fire extinguisher because he just wouldn't light anything on fire. The house caught fire anyway. It burned down because he was too stubborn to own a fire extinguisher, right? So I get that if you're Cal Eldred, you can't you can lead the horse to water, can't make it drink. What you can do is lock the horse in the stable until it's willing to drink when you get to the river. And that's the thing with Singer is they've just let him work all this out at the big league level. And a guy we're going to talk about later, it's kind of the same way. It's like, why do why does he get to do all this at the big league level? And everybody else has to go to the minor leagues for three generations to prove their worth, while Brady Singer and Ryan O'Hearn get to work out all of their problems at the big league level. They get to work out everything. They get to be stubborn. They get to not make changes. And everybody else has to go down. Like at some point as a pitching coach, you have to hold your guys accountable. And if you're Cal Eldred, if you're Mike Matheny, you got to tell your boss, look, I don't trust him. He won't listen. He won't do what we're asking him to do. He's got to go somewhere else and work on this until he's willing to listen and, and work. Then he can come back. So I don't really know who to blame, but at what point is this Cal Eldred's fault, Max, in your opinion, for, for not stepping in and making him make a change? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, I think they were kind of a victim of their own success early on a little bit, uh, which sounds weird to say for a team that's as far back in the standings as they are. But, you know, they had a, they got off to a good start in April and Singer was pitching well. And I think there was kind of a belief of like, Hey, we're, we're playing pretty well. Singer's doing well with, it's just a sinker and slider. Um, let's not mess with success. Right. Uh, we don't want him throwing a change up and getting his brains beat in and we cost us games and what could be a, a pennant race. Uh, so I, I kind of get that, but I mean, you knew this was the issue going into the season. Uh, you know, there was a, a piece by Alec Lewis at the athletic a couple weeks ago about, you know, singer developing his chain, working on his change. And he's talking about like, you know, it's tough to develop this, to work on this mid season. I'm like, why is he developing this mid season? You had since really last year to, to work on this, um, you know, something you should have been working on from day one. And yeah, I, I've been pretty agnostic about Cal Eldred. I don't know the ins and outs of what he's telling these guys, how much they're impressing upon these pitchers, uh, what kind of, you know, what, you know, I know some managers call pitches. I, I, I expect Salvi probably does it with this team. Uh, you know, how much can you force Singer to throw changeups? I mean, I don't know, uh, but it is a little confounding that it's just, it's August, end of August, really. We only have a couple weeks left of the season and, He's just now kind of regularly throwing changeups. And, and like Jeremy said, we, we don't even know if he'll do that. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, Eldred is, it's, it's always tough to, to judge pitching coaches by kind of the results because the impact they make on different players is going to be different. 
you know, so, some guys will buy in. So a lot of guys won't. Um, there's a lot of ton of other variables, you know, injuries, age, opponents. Um, so it's hard to say. I think the, the progress pitchers, the pitchers have made this year will almost certainly buy Eldred another year or two, if not more. Uh, so we'll have to see. But, you know, I think it is encouraging that at least it's better late than never. But I do share some of your frustrations. It's like, why did it take this long? Well, let's talk about that real quick, too, is one of my favorite quotes. Um, it, anytime we talk about we talk about progress in any capacity is from Malcolm X. We we're talking about this, you know, before we started recording. Malcolm X once said, "You could if you put a knife nine inches in my back and pull it out six, that's not progress, right?" Um, and, and so with Cal Eldred, if if anyone believes, or if really, yeah, if anyone believes that if Cal Eldred is responsible for the backwards development of this pitching staff early on, then the the progress they've made now, you can't really give him the benefit of the doubt if all these pitchers were supposed to be performing better, they haven't been, and now all of a sudden they are. Like, it can't take three months. Like, part of your job as a, as a pitching coach is to fix the problems before your team loses another 100 games. Like, you can't be out of the playoff race, all of a sudden see improvement, and go, oh, okay. So I, I'm personally conflicted about this because it is undeniable that Brad Keller has been way better since the beginning of July. It is undeniable that Carlos Hernandez looks like a legitimate top half of the rotation arm in the last few starts he's made. Daniel Lynch, I'm less inclined to give Cal Eldred any credit for because Daniel Lynch has always been good. He's always supposed to have been good. The fact that he wasn't good in his time in Kansas City to me is or early on is more of an indictment on Eldred than giving Eldred credit now. But with Keller's recent returning to normal ish, three and a half ERA closer to a four FIP, that's right on brand for Keller. Carlos Hernandez really never got a ton of looks in the minor leagues. He went from low A to the big leagues. So I think it's fair to suggest that any progress he's made is maybe good on Eldred's part. But it can't take this long. We can't be sitting here in August, at the end of August, thinking, hey, we finally have had a good month and a half. And the overall track record for Eldred has suggested that he has not done a good job overall um, in terms of the Royals pitching production. So, Jeremy, I want to get your thoughts on Eldred. Do you think the progress that, he, that the pitchers have made at the end of the season, assuming this continues through September, is enough for Eldred to keep his job into 2022? Or are you kind of with Malcolm X? You can't you can't kill it, bring it halfway back to life, and then claim progress. Well, for starters, let me let me push back a little bit. I don't think Cal Eldred deserves any credit for Carlos Hernandez. I know he went from low A to the big leagues, but he wasn't good last year. And then he broke camp with the big league club, was not good in the bullpen. Then he got demoted back to the minor leagues, and when he came back, he was good. So I, I don't see Cal Eldred doing much in that scenario. I mean, maybe he coached him while he was in the minor leagues, but eh, that just seems uh, I, I don't buy it. I don't think Cal Eldred had much to do with that. Um, as for as for the rest of it, um, you know, we talked about or, or it, it was talked about uh, when. Keller was struggling right at the end of his struggles. He he flat out admitted that he and Eldred had no idea what was wrong. And, and it's the pitching coach's job to like, it's the pitcher's job to fix it. 
It's the pitching coach's job to know that what the problem is so he can tell the pitcher so the pitcher can fix it. And, you know, they might work together to fix it, but the the only job a coach has like 100% every time has in my mind is you got, they have to know what the problems are. A coach has to be able to look at you and say, this is what your problem is. And if a coach says, this is what your problem is, I have no idea how to fix it then, you know, maybe that's, I don't necessarily think that means that the coach is bad, but, you know, they have to at least be able to tell you this is what's wrong. And it took him all year to figure out what was wrong with Brad Keller. And it took, I guess, I think I heard like a certain camera angle that they had at Fenway. Why don't, why, why don't you have that camera angle anywhere else? That does, that seems bad to me. Like maybe you need that camera angle more places. Uh, or you need to have been looking for that thing uh, in other camera angles. I, I just, I'm, and to, to go back to something Max said a little bit is it's hard to tell like when a pitching coach is good and that's true, but that means that you don't know how much you're losing. If you're, if you're cutting one, like if they're all, roughly equal and it's really up to the pitchers to to figure things out in the end then you're not hurting yourself by moving on from Cal Eldred and at this point I if you can't tell me Cal Eldred is doing something positive and I don't see how you can you could say oh well Brad Keller became really good under him but one pitcher became really good under him that's it that's that's what he's got for three four years however many it's been now that's not enough and, and so it, I think it's, you know, a, pitching coaches don't get fired because they're, they're off for the same reason that you or I get fired because we're just that bad at our jobs. They get fired because they're not the best in the world. The same way baseball players lose major league jobs, not because they're bad at baseball. They're still better than any of us. They're just not the best in the world. And so if Cal Eldred is not the best pitching coach in the world, then it's time to move on. I'll push back on a little bit. Pitching coaches don't get fired because they're not the best in the world. Pitching coaches get fired because the team is slumping and they need a scapegoat. I mean, yes, that too. I I mean, I mean, really teams don't ever fire coaches unless the team is losing. And then they're like, they look around and say, well, Someone out, someone here has to go, and it's it's going to be you know the hitting coach, the pitching coach, and and that's it. I'm usually you know that's the Padres fired Larry Rothschild last week. I don't know that Larry Rothschild was necessarily doing a bad job. They have a ton of pitchers, injur- pitchers on the injury list, uh, but the team is not performing up to expectations, so he has to go. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you know the Royals. I think the Royals have made enough progress. I don't think uh, Elders in, in in any danger of losing his job, but. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think he made some good points there. So. Yeah, I, I whether or not he's in danger of losing his job, I think he should be. For I mean, you're right that pitching coaches mostly get fired because the team is slumping. But I think based on the criteria that I believe a pitching coach should have, he doesn't deserve to continue with the team. Or uh, it's not necessarily even about him deserving to. It's just that it's it's time to see if you can do better. You got to, you got to try something. And if this isn't working well enough and it's not, then try something. Well, yeah. And and I think that's, that's a fair point is like, you know, we, we can say, you know, cause, cause I kind of agree with Max that typically pitching coaches are fired when the team isn't playing well, but to a certain point, like if the team's not playing well, then what are you doing in the dugout? Like if, if, if you're not actively making the situation better, 
if you're not actively part of the solution, if it's not working under you, sorry, it may not be your fault, but I got to go find somebody else who can help me write the ship. And again, it's like, you know, if uh, I, I really don't can't think of a good metaphor. I was thinking about Alex Smith in his time in Kansas City where, you know, Alex Smith, by all by all measures in 2017, had a great season. I'm pretty sure he got MVP votes in 2017, right? The Chiefs just realized, here's our ceiling with Alex Smith. This is our ceiling. Here's where we want to go. Alex Smith, as good as he's been, can't take us there. We're going to go in a different direction. Even if, even if that's Cal Eldred, even if you wanted to stand on the mountain and make a dying case that Cal Eldred is somehow good at his job, which, I, again, I don't know how you could, if you're not making a difference in the positive, if, you, if you're not making noticeable change in the right direction, man, you may not be bad at your job, but we're just going to go find somebody else who's better. So it's, it's kind of a combination of, of what you guys have said. Um, and, and Jeremy, I think your point is right that, you know, he doesn't, he's not a bad pitching coach in terms of like the general population, but we're looking for the 32 best pitching coaches in the world to put in these dugouts. And if you can't perform like one of them, or if you can't get your pitchers to perform like you're one of them, then maybe maybe it's just time to go in a different direction. And I think it brings up a a whole other conversation about loyalty. And I mean, God Almighty, if you if you if you listening, if you follow Royals Farm Report at Royals Farm on Twitter at all, I will go to war over Dayton Moore. Like I I will go to bat for Dayton Moore, defend him until I die. Like. I just think he's way underappreciated. Like I, I really think a lot of times in the in the conversations surrounding Dayton Moore, people totally whiff on the context of what he took over. Like literally the worst run franchise in sports. Like imagine if somebody told you the Colorado Rockies were going to win the World Series in 2030. There's no way. There's no way the Rockies are going to be anywhere close to ready to win a World Series that soon. They are they are horribly run and Dayton Moore literally came in and in nine years had this team at the mountaintop of baseball the one fault that I think Dayton Moore is as guilty of as anyone is just an extended amount of loyalty and it's it is a results-based business like you are nothing to a major league baseball team if you can't one sell some tickets right or b produce on the field. And I think the Royals have shown sometimes way much too much to a fault that they're willing to ride or die with their guys results be damned if they're doing everything else right. And I want to come back. We're going to take a little ad break here. We'll come back to this on the other side of the break, but the loyalty is going to be what gets Dayton more in trouble, if anything. And we'll come right back and talk about that. All right, I want to continue this conversation about loyalty. And and truly, I think if there's if there was going to be a downfall to Dayton Moore as a GM in baseball, it's going to be sticking with guys that he that he and his organization. I sometimes I say Dayton Moore like it's him making every call. Really what I mean is the culture he's established, which by all means is an outstanding culture in the dugout, in the clubhouse, in the front office. I mean, I've really never heard of anybody say a bad word about the way the Royals run their shop. But Brady Singer, Cal Eldred, and Ryan O'Hearn are pretty good examples of you do everything else right that we're asking you to, so we are going to give you every single possibility and opportunity to fail at the big league level 
if you want to. And Brady Singer's not as good of an example as like Ryan O'Hearn is, which I want to get to now. But Ryan O'Hearn cost Brady Singer a run or two, maybe even three in the first inning the other day. He's a great example of a guy who has not earned big league playing time. I don't really know how you could argue that he has. I mean, I don't know what it is that Ryan O'Hearn does good for this team. I'm not in the clubhouse. I don't know Ryan O'Hearn. And I want to be clear, this isn't Ryan O'Hearn's fault. Ryan O'Hearn doesn't make the lineup. Ryan O'Hearn doesn't walk in there, and, and maybe he does. Maybe he's got pictures of Mike Matheny on his phone. But as far as I know, he's not blackmailing anybody. Mike Matheny just and, – and maybe the front office – love Ryan O'Hearn so much that they're just going to play him every day. And, and that's the thing as a, as a fan, you know, I think I, if there's anything that I'm fair about is trying to just admit that the Royals probably know more than I do. They're probably right. They're probably better at the job than I am. Otherwise they would have called me and hired me a long time ago. Right. So I try to give these teams the benefit of the doubt, but as a fan, I don't know how you can sit there and defend the playing of Ryan O'Hearn anymore and I want to talk about Ryan O'Hearn and his playing time specifically, but also as it relates to the to the loyalty thing. So, Max, I'll start with you. Do you have any outstanding thoughts on Ryan O'Hearn and maybe bigger picture? What on earth are the Royals doing running him out there every day? Like, what could the point be if you were going to try to defend him? Yeah, I think you make a really good point. It's something I've kind of said the last couple of years is that Dayton Moore's loyalty is both, uh, you know, his best best virtue and is also his his, his weakness because uh you know it's great when he's loyal to loyal to a player and gives him you know 1500 at bats and that guy eventually gets it like mike Mustakas. but it's you know it's a curse when you give a guy like ryan O'Hearn, you know a thousand plate appearances and he's not a great defender he's not really walking anymore he's not hitting a ton of home runs at least not enough to justify his spot in the lineup and so and he's blocking edward Oliveras, who i think you know i'm not I don't think he's any great shakes, but I'd like to see what he can do. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a problem. I think, and then it's, it's it's been a problem, I think, in the past for, for Dayton Moore is like he trusts his his 180, the 180 players in his organization, and he can't comprehend that there might be someone out there available who is better than one of those guys and replace them. Uh, and, and so we'll have to see, you know, going forward. But, you know, Oliveras is a guy that, you know, he's at kind of the crossroads of his career too. And, and look, O'Hearn, I think they want to get one last look at him so they can say, okay, look, we're going to non-tender him at the end of the year. We gave him every shot and we can wash our hands of him and say, you know what? We, we, we gave him every opportunity, but Oliver is getting to that point too. I mean, O'Hearn is 20 years old. He's not really going to get better all of a sudden. Oliver is good. You know, he's at that age where he needs to see major league pitching. He needs to figure out how to hit, you know, off speed stuff and, and sliders off the plate. Uh, he needs to learn how to, you know, work the grind of a major league season. And he's not getting that opportunity right now. And, you know, before too long, he's going to be 28 years old and there's going to be guys pushing him. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an issue. And, and, and especially in a year like this, I don't know what the point of playing a guy like Ryan O'Hearn is. Um, you know, that's something that if you're the Baltimore Orioles and you need to fill the lineup, you play a guy like Ryan O'Hearn. The Royals should be like getting, a, 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 you know, a look as, as many young guys as they can. And in my opinion, O'Hearn's not that guy anymore. But I don't know. Hope, uh, Jeremy, you may feel differently. I know you, you're a little, more, a little higher on uh, O'Hearn than I am. So the thing about Ryan O'Hearn and the, the thing I think that keeps him on the big league roster, keeps him in the lineup, is his exit velocity. His exit velocities are amazing. The problem is they don't turn into hits. 
And for most guys, you'd say, and we said this about Hunter Dozier, I think in 2019, um, and to a degree, we said it this year and it didn't really work out. But um, in 2019, uh, I know I was one of the people, but I know other people were saying this, that Hunter Dozier was hitting the ball hard early in 2019. He just wasn't getting any hits. And when a guy is doing that, usually you say, well, he's going to start getting his hits. Some of them will fall in. And, and it, it, with Ryan O'Hearn, it's been three years of them not falling in now. Um, they were for a little bit. They He had a really hot June and he had a hot start to August, but he's cooled off considerably uh, this month. And I think beyond the loyalty, I think one of the things the Royals maybe do, and it just kind of feels like they, they see guys and they see any one aspect of their game that looks good. And they'll be like, maybe he can figure out everything else. It's like trying to, to uh, it's like trying to fill a straight. You have two cards uh, 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 that are next to each other. And you're like, I'm going to discard three and go pull for a straight. And it, it just doesn't make any sense. But it's what it seems like they do. I, I think we saw this with Kelvin Gutierrez, where they said, oh, he's got a rocket arm at third base. And he hits the ball hard. Okay, yeah, but he hits it on the ground 80% of the time. And, and when he throws it, he doesn't know where it's going. So, yeah, they've got tools. I, I saw it with Jorge Lopez, right? He's got tools. He's got stuff. And let's give him every chance to figure out at the big league level how to make that stuff get him out. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And they they really will just hang on to guys for way too long sometimes. Um, not just out of loyalty, I think, but also out of they have one thing that they do really well, and that's good enough. I think that's why Alcides Escobar has been a part of this organization year after year after year after year. He was here this year. Don't forget. Um, is he plays good defense. He can't hit. He stopped running, but he still plays good defense. So they, they keep him around. They keep bringing him back. And it gets to be an, it gets to be an absolute issue. Um, when, when, when you hold on to someone like a Mike Moustakis, he's got more tools. He's got an ability to, to take a walk to, to, he's shown some ability to place good defense, et cetera. Ryan O'Hearn really hasn't shown anything other than the, the end of what 2017 was that his first year, the end of his first season. Um, he, he looked like a superstar and we all knew he wasn't going to stay that way, but you know, I, they just, I think they Dayton Moore looked at that and he said, and he hits, he still hits it hard. Even four years later, he still hits it hard. So keep putting him out there. Cause he's still hitting it hard. And someday those balls got to fall. Right. You know, it's funny. I, I'm looking at um, Ryan O'Hearn's baseball savant page and then they have at the bottom of the page, they have this, um, it's called expected home runs by park. And in Kauffman stadium, it's, it's five Detroit, five Arizona, four Yankee stadium, 12 Houston, 12 Seattle, 12. It's like, I can see where if you're the Royals, you're, you're afraid that man, if we let him go, any Jorge Soler is it? Because Jorge Soler, I don't know if you guys have noticed, tearing it up for the Braves. Now, I'm not going to – like trading Jorge Soler was absolutely the correct move. But I think this speaks to – if you have to give a guy like Ryan O'Hearn this many opportunities because you're afraid he might go somewhere else and perform, 
What does that say about your confidence in your hitting coaches? Like, if you don't think your hitting coaches are getting the premium, most efficient, like the top performance out of your hitters, and you're afraid to cut them because you're afraid they're going to go somewhere else and do it, that to me tells me you don't trust your hitting coaches, that you don't think your hitting coaches are doing their job. And again, we haven't seen anybody held accountable for that. Now, I know that's that maybe that may sound like a reach, but I would love to hear anyone's defense for playing Ryan O'Hearn every day like they have. I would love to hear it because I haven't been convinced. I haven't been sold. And if your if your argument is, man, he does all the other things right, blah 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 blah, then Dayton Moore is kind of like one of those classic parents that gets walked all over in the movies, right? They have they have the kid who's a teenage bully. And they come home, they talk back to their parents. Their parents are just so nice and loving and supportive that they don't ever discipline their kids and they turn into little jerks, right? At some point, you have to hold players accountable. If you think he's doing everything right except performing, dude, at some point, that's what matters is performing. That or you don't trust your hitting coaches to get squeeze every ounce of talent out of them. You're afraid he's going to go somewhere else and perform. Otherwise, I just... I am at a loss of words. What else is it about Ryan O'Hearn that he's playing? Because I have not heard yet a single good excuse. Max, I'm going to give you an opportunity here. Is there anything I'm missing that defends playing Ryan O'Hearn every single day, finding spots for him in the lineup? Well, I, well I just real quick, I, you know, you talk about not having faith in, in your, your coaching staff. What about also you don't have faith in your minor league development and your minor leaguers? I mean, where's your faith in Edward Oliveras at this point? And, but I think you're right. I think there is a fear. And it's not just Dayton Moore. I see this with other general managers too, of like not wanting to be the guy that gave up, you know, Jose Bautista or, you know, the, don't be the guy that gave up on some player that turned into something great. But you know what? The, every team does it. The Rays gave up on Willie Adam, uh, Adames, and he looks like an MVP candidate with the Brewers now. I mean, it happens. And the Rays are still great. I mean, they have, they're loaded with talent. You, you, you produce enough talent. You don't have to worry about that. Um, so, my only real defense of, of playing or her, I guess, is, is like I said, I think this is like, you know, this is a lost season. We got eight weeks here at the end of the year. We're going to give him a chance to play every day, see if he can turn it on. If he can't, well, then it's, we'll give him a one-way ticket out of town. And But uh, like I said, you know, if, if if they didn't have Edward Oliveras, that would make a lot more sense. But because they have Oliveras, who, again, I don't think is that great, but he could be. He could be something useful. Um and then maybe they don't, and you know, I think Jeffrey Flanagan tweeted this out a couple of weeks ago. Like they have some mixed feelings about Oliveras. I think he's kind of a tweener, like doesn't have enough power for a corner spot, doesn't have enough defense for center field. So, you know, there, there, there could be a situation where they just don't feel like he's an everyday player, but neither is Ryan Hearn. I mean, like, and, and the thing is like, what's the upside? What Ryan Hearn turns into a, a great power hitting right field slash D. I mean, is he, is he really capable of playing right field every day the next couple of years as he gets into age 30? Um, I mean, you know, what do you do with Hunter Dozier at that part, point? You, you're certainly not going to play him at first base where you have Nick Prado. So it's not like he really has a spot on this roster in the future anyway, if you were to start hitting. Um, so, you know, maybe they're showcasing him for another team. I can't imagine he has that much value. So it's, it's hard to defend. I, you know, like I said, the best I can come up with is maybe they're, they're giving him one last chance, but uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a little confounding. I did have one more thought that was kind of inspired by what you were saying um alex 
is that maybe they're they're giving O'Hearn all these chances because O'Hearn does whatever they ask him to do. They say, hey, stop, uh, try to hit the ball more to left field. And he tries to hit the ball more to left field. And they say, hey, pl- try, learn how to play right field. And he learns how to play right field. And they say, oh, well, he's doing what we asked him to do. So that's that's good enough to reason to, to play it when we're awful. Uh, that, that, it's not an excuse. It's not, or at least it's not a good one. Um, but it did occur to me that it might be some reasoning going on there. I get that. I think there's, there's, there's two types of, um, problems coaches run into is one, the uber talented player who won't listen, but is so good. You got to play him anyway, kind of accidentally sometimes tells the less talented players that, hey, if you're good enough, we'll play you. You don't need to listen. And, and the reverse is by telling more talented players, all you got to do is listen, we'll play you. But we're going to show that with by playing somebody who's horrible is you kind of lose the locker room in a sense for the more talented players who are like, I can do better than this. Like, this is ridiculous. He's the worst player on the team. He's still playing. Like, the coaches don't know what they're doing. You can lose a you can lose a locker room both ways, and I, and I do agree with that. That if the Royals think their current issue is nobody's listening, so we'll play O'Hearn every day because he will. Again, what does that say about your coaching staff that nobody's listening, right? So I think really, no matter how you work around it, the playing of Ryan O'Hearn every day is an indictment on your organization somehow. And there's really no I've I've not heard a good defense yet that totally circumvents an indictment on your organization. I don't want to rant and rave about Ryan O'Hearn all night because I could, especially after a few Dr. Peppers. Really quick before we go, my final thought for the night, Nicky Lopez is this only team's player with more than three F4 right now. I think that's completely ridiculous because I think the way that fan graphs values catcher's defense and catchers in general is just so ridiculous. Um, that Salvador Perez has 2.1 F war and Nicky Lopez has been worth 3.1. Like, I don't think anybody in their right mind would look at Nicky Lopez and Salvador Perez and go, you know what? Um, Nicky Lopez has been a full win better than Salvador Perez this year. Salvador Perez of the 34 home runs. And even if he's not a gold glove defender anymore, still by all accounts is a good enough defender behind home plate. Um, Nicky Lopez has also been worth 3.1 B war, which I think is interesting. Um, when you compare fan graphs and baseball reference, typically fan graphs tends to value offense a little more. Nicky Lopez's value obviously comes mostly from his defense because he's been a little bit below average as a league hitter, um, a little bit below league average as a hitter. Salvador Perez, 3.8 B war compared to 2.1 F war. So, my only point to that was Nicky Lopez leading this team is leading this team in F war. And while that may be a little disingenuous because of their knock on Salvador Perez, Nicky Lopez has been fantastic. And in my opinion, when you roll out the opening day lineup in 2022, Nicky Lopez should be a part of it. Full stop every single day. He is, he talk about earning a spot in the lineup. He has earned a future everyday look in this lineup until further notice. Um, just wanted to shout out Nicky Lopez a little bit because what he's done this year has been really nothing short of incredible. And congratulations to him too, for uh, getting engaged over the weekend in Chicago. I mean, what a, 
what a weekend to play in front of friends and family to, to have a great game on Saturday. Uh, and really he's, he's been tearing it up the last couple of weeks. I mean, he actually went yard. I mean, <laughs> what a, what a month he's having. So yeah, I, I, uh, I join you uh, salute to Nicky Lopez. Um, you know, he's a guy that I think uh, we've been, uh, you and you and I have been, and I think Jeremy as well, have been kind of watching in the minors and been a fan of, and, you know, look, he, he's kind of a breath of fresh air in, you know, and I'm a big believer in analytics and, and, and three true outcomes, but um, it's nice to have diversity in the game and guys that can do different things, run, hit, you know, put the ball in play, uh, you know, move runners along. It's not a strategy I want to use all the time, but it's nice to have that skill set when you need it. And he, he provides that and he, and he helps the team win games. And there's no doubt about it. He has, a, you know, it's his job to lose next year. Uh, and so I think the Royals, uh, they, they handled him pretty well. I think they gave him a, uh, a, a fair shot and, he, and he's, he's making the most of it. The Royals gave the young guy a fair shot. Uh, Jeremy, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts? Um, the only final thought I have is, is going to be completely kind of out of left field or should I say center field? Cause the same way you wanted to say something positive about Nikki Lopez, I just wanted to take a moment and say some nice things about Michael A. Taylor. Um, no, he hasn't been a superstar. He's not been Lorenzo Kane out there, but um, he's and he's not hitting well by any stretch of the imagination. I just looked it up. He's got an 81 WRC plus, according to Fangrass, which isn't great, but he does offer some speed. He offers some really terrific defense out there in center field. And I think if he was the worst hitter on this team, instead of like the number five or number six hitter, if he was like the number nine hitter and you had some really, you had some actual quality batters one through eight, I think you wouldn't even bat an eye. You would say, yes, Michael A. Taylor doing his job, playing center field very well, offering some speed at the bottom of the lineup, offering some occasional power. Uh, Michael A. Taylor's problem is that he was, he was kind of brought in to be, a big gun a little bit he was kind of advertised oh he's overhauled his swing he's going to be completely different now and he's he's pretty much who he always was um which isn't awful just just to say that you know it's not great he's not who they need him to be i guess uh but uh he's he's a guy who i maybe won't be playing center field for kansas city next year but i think he will be somewhere yeah, if Michael A. Taylor is your fourth outfielder next year, that would be phenomenal. I would be all for another $2 million contract, come be the fourth outfielder. Um, as long as they go find their more permanent fixture in center field, perfect. Um, but, you're, but you're right, Michael A. Taylor's been outstanding, I think, in terms of what was expected. I do think they kind of – I don't know why they did it, but you didn't need to. You didn't have to fool anybody at the beginning of the season that Michael A. Taylor was going to be something that he isn't. And, the, and, and you're right. They kind of did. Like, oh, he's overhauled his swing. Maybe he's going to be different. Like, all they should have said was, look, he's a reliable defender. He's going to produce a little bit offensively, and he's going to really go get it in center field. And I think fans have been like, okay. Um, so, yeah, you're right. He's done exactly what should be as, as advertised um, and, and probably doesn't get enough credit for, for doing that. Uh, Max, any final thoughts? Uh, no, no, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, you know, I'm, it is fun to see the Royals play. Well, I just say like, I'd rather them play well than not. Um, but, uh, you know, we've kind of been down this road before where they play well once chief season starts. And so, uh, you know, it's, and I think every year we get fooled and like, Oh, this could carry over, over to next year. But in this case, you know, the fact that the pitch young pitchers are pitching so well, I think it made, has made me really encouraged. 
you know, I, I think I've seen two of Carlos Hernandez's uh, starts in person last couple of weeks, and he's just really impressive. Just the poise he has out there. He looks like a, he knows what he's doing. And I love bigger bodied pitchers who I think could be workhorses and go deep into games. And uh, when his when his command is on, I think he's a really impressive pitcher out there and a really tremendous find by the Royals. Agreed. I think, um, you know, Josh Vernier does the pregame show for the Royals on 610 Sports Radio in Kansas City. Um, and he, he – one of the things that, you know, I, I think Josh has done – like a phenomenal job of is like finding themes that fit the Royal season. And then, um, you know, back in the playoff runs, it was just, it was incredible. Like the themes he would come up with and, and really making like a, like a 30 minute pregame show and an hour long postgame show, like entertaining and really fun to listen to every night. Um, anyway, he keeps saying basically, you know, tonight's game is the starting pitcher 25 or younger. Awesome. I'm watching. Is the starting pitcher older than 25? All right. Check back in tomorrow. So, I think you're right is I legitimately like today I was in school. I was on my plan hour and I, and I'd forgotten the Royals had that day game. And so I went to the MLB app real quick and saw that it was minor. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll catch up when I get home. Um, Cause sometimes I'll, you know, turn the, like when the kids are working, I'll turn the game on the screen in front of the room and, and let them watch it or whatever while they're working today. I was like, Mike minor and no picks. Like I'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll pick up tomorrow, whatever the next season or episode is. So, um, but yeah, the, the young starting pitching has legitimately given us reason to watch. They have been a lot of fun to watch. Um, and again, kind of goes back. Is that is that going to be enough to A, save Cal Eldred's job? And B, is it is it enough to to start giving him a little bit of respect in terms of the job he's done? I don't know the answer to that. Um I, I tend to think no, but I think if if it keeps going and if they keep improving through September, um that it that it's fair to to change course and do a 180 here, and maybe acknowledge that Cal Eldred potentially is the reason for the turnaround. So I do think the jury is still out. It's something I'm going to be watching very closely as the year goes on, especially hoping fingers crossed Jackson Coar comes back and adds another young arm that we can watch in the big leagues. So um, gentlemen, thank you for joining me tonight. We will be back again sometime next week with uh, another episode for you. Thank you for listening. If you made it this far with us, uh, we will be back sometime here soon. Thanks again.